Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to have Paul Slater here today. Paul's the co-founder of Billion Minds. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. And we'd love for you just to start by telling us about your career. We, we just find it fascinating, right, that we were talking about this just a few minutes ago, the different lives we've had in our careers. And I think um, that would be a really great place to start is just tell us about your career journey and how you kind of got to where you are now. Sure. Well, it's fairly long at this point, uh, but uh, I actually like to go all the way back to where I intended to be and what I intended to be. I was going to be a surgeon. That was the plan. Um, and uh, that was the plan from when I was about five years old, actually. Um, and I succeeded in getting all the way to med school. Uh, and then the day I arrived in med school, a few days afterwards, we started to do um, an, uh, anatomy dissection for the first time. Loved it. Thought it was great. A week later, I went to do it again. And they were asking us a whole bunch of questions about what we'd seen previously and simple things like pointing at blood vessels and saying, what's that? And all the other kids... Uh, in, as we were at that time uh, in med school, were saying, oh, it's this, it's that. I couldn't remember any of it. And I was like, there's something, there's something odd. There's something weird going on here. Um, so I struggled in med school dramatically that entire year. And the end of the year, I had to kind of make a decision um, that I probably wasn't going to be, I thought I was going to be good at this. I probably wasn't going to be any good at this. By the way, years later, I found out that I have something called aphantasia, which means you have no visual memory. So there was actually a concrete reason why I was struggling as much as I was, but I wouldn't know that for years and years and years later. So from five years old to like when I got into med school and a year in, that was it. That was what I was going to do. Then very rapidly, I had to change career and just do something else and become something else, kind of reinvent myself in a sense. Um, didn't really know how to, what to do with that, but really enjoyed computer science. Um, and so had a pretty long career in, uh, in computer science, uh, culminating in, in about 10 years at, uh, at Microsoft. And then during the end of my time there, um, I became really, really interested in what I would say would be the, uh, the intersection between technology and the human being, but also the, uh, the intersection between um, business that is getting done and the humans that are responsible for doing it. Um, because the way in which we've worked has changed so much, has changed so dramatically over the course of the last 10 to, uh, 10 to 15 years. And because we're humans, we do adapt. Um, because we're humans, um, we kind of make the best of it. But I was really kind of became really, really interested on, in part, the toll it was taking on humans to have to adapt as much as they did and into this new world of work. But then also what we could do in a concrete way to help human beings thrive more within, uh, within the workplace and therefore help their organizations get more out of those humans. So that really became like the real obsession um, for me. And then I met my co-founder 
at the, uh, towards the latter period of my time at Microsoft, he was really interested in this work as well. And so ultimately we left to form Billion Minds. Well, I, I love your career path. It's like so many other people that we've met in our lives that we thought it was going to be a straight path and it was really like this bumblebee kind uh -huh. of trajectory. Uh, mm -hmm. So interesting. So I, I'd like to ask more about your, your current role. Could you tell us about Billion Minds and why did you start it and what are you doing there? Sure. So we like to say that Billion Minds um, helps organizations identify and grow adaptable, resilient employees. Um, and so I'll briefly take each of those two things in turn because they are somewhat different. Um, so think of adaptability as being uh, your ability to be able to shift from one mode of work to another mode of work, from one type of work to another type of work, or to use your skills in one way and start using your skills in a different way. And then you can think of resilience as being your ability to be able to sort of ride this roller coaster, right? That is modern life and the modern work life. And to be able to do it, if you like, with equanimity, to be able to do it uh, in a way that doesn't, uh, that doesn't bring you down as a human, as an, as an individual. Um, and so that's about, you know, intellectually and emotionally being able to process all of this change that is happening, which is somewhat different than the, uh, than just the raw ability to be able to do it. And so you'll see in certain walks of life, um, you can have one, but not the other. So I like to uh, use baseball as an example. Baseball has a 162 game season with lots of ups and downs in it. Baseball players have to be highly resilient in order to be able to manage that. But do they have to be terribly adaptable? Actually, no, right? If you're a shortstop, you're not suddenly going to move to left field or you're not suddenly going to go and play a different sport. So those, uh, so you need in that environment, you need a ton, a ton of resilience, but you don't need a ton of adaptability. But what we found in the workplace, um, and certainly in the modern flexible world of work, um, particularly that involves you know, hybrid and remote, but also involves these uh, these massive changes in how we work and it's becoming much more unstructured and much more ambiguous typically employees need to be both they need to be adaptable and resilient and so that's what we focus on uh in to try to cr create practical um exercises that help employees do that but then also to help employers measure um, uh, the adaptability and resilience of their workforce so that they know they've got a future-proof workforce I really appreciate that description of the difference between adaptable and resilient. I think that the baseball player example is a good one, a good <laughs> one to use. So we've seen kind of such an interesting thing. I think you've obviously seen the thing with Zoom, um, mm -hmm. the company Zoom saying, let's bring employees back to the office. Um, and you're just seeing that more and more, right? It's creeping back of this yeah. like expectation that more and more people are coming back to the office or expected to come back to the office. So I wonder, I'd love to hear your thoughts about why you think that's happening now. You know, what do you, why, and what, what are your thoughts about that? Oh gosh, it's super complicated. That could be three or four hours in its own right, but I'll try, I'll try my best to kind of like uh, to summarize it. It's something that we watch very closely because as you can imagine, given what we're looking to do and given that our focus on uh, is to help people um, sort of thrive in these, in these, flexible work environments. Um, it's an area that's of a lot of interest to us. Um, I will say there's, a, there's, there's almost certainly a few things at work here. One is that um, it's, it is true that there, is, um, there are some cognitive biases that are, uh, there are at play. Um, and 
it's just possible to see that kind of as an out, uh, as an outsider who talks to a lot of leaders inside uh, inside these organizations. So, for example, um, people uh, leaders in off, often are conflating: can I see work happening with is work happening? Right. Um, also, they're struggling with a bunch of different things that are fundamentally different. It's true to say that if you've got a bunch of uh, employees um, that are working in an entirely different way. And you're giving them minimal help and assistance to build and maintain the skills to do so sustainably. It's likely that some of them are going to struggle. Now, the what people are doing in many of these organizations is that they're confronting people with a with a new way of working. They're seeing people potentially certain individuals struggle in that type of environment, and then they're ostensibly saying, "Okay, the challenge, the problem here is that new way of work," rather than um, looking at this new way of work and saying, how do we build a thriving organization? How do we build a thriving culture? How do we uh, basically address four things, employee readiness, infrastructure, policy, and culture? How do we address all of those uh, four things and build a thriving organization that is centered around remote and hybrid? Um, And so, Some organizations are doing it. Some organizations are kind of playing the long game and saying, we are a remote first company. We're going to build the infrastructure in order to be able to thrive at that. But other ones are just going, well, we tried that. It didn't work. Now let's bring people back in the office. Um, And so I think that over time, this will even out. Most uh, commentators and observers believe that in many cases, organizations will settle around some kind of a hybrid model. But they'll realize ultimately that they need, in order for that to work, they need to invest in their people to make sure that their people have the skills to be able to 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 thrive in that type of environment. One last thing I'll say about it is that for companies that have done that, for companies that have truly invested in the readiness of their employees to thrive in these types of environments, they have thrived as a result. Because by, by definition, if you can do great work in that type of environment, we like to call it you know, doing great work while nobody's watching, then that gives you those skills of resilience and adaptability that you can apply to any other change that happens inside, uh, inside your work environment. That's so interesting. And I, I just want to double click on Laura's question with the hybrid work. It was just just the date this podcast, it was just about a week ago that Zoom said, uh, we're going to be bringing you back into the office. Yeah. I just thought it was amazing irony. And a lot of the Gen Z students that that I teach and interact with, they really, really bristle at being commanded to come back to the office. And I can't help but have in the back of my head and think, I wonder if you're lonely and you might like going back. And it's just a thought. And I'm wondering, what what do you think of that? Do you think they're lonely? Yes. Um, in fact, I don't. We don't just think that. We know that. Um, and the reason that I say that is because, um, as part of the work we do at Billion Minds, we're um, we constantly and continuously um, interview uh, people that are within the program, talk to them about all aspects of um, of remote and hybrid, um, and indeed all aspects of flexible work. Period. Regardless of whether it uh, whether you formally have remote or hybrid. But this loneliness thing, Michael, is actually really is actually really complicated. Um, there is a broad there are broader societal changes that are happening that are leading to an increase uh, an increase in loneliness. There's basically a a reduction 
in what I would say would be close, tight connections and an expansion of significantly looser connections as people are, uh, you know, communicating more over social media and, and, and tools like that. Um, and even in the office, if you think about it, if you walk into an office 15, 20 years ago, the people that you were working with, the people that you were collaborating with were typically, you know, within six feet of you. Um, today, even if you work in an office setting, it's very common for the people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, they can be thousands of miles away. So you're in an office, whether it's a traditional office or a shared office space, people around you might be doing entirely different work with entirely, with entirely different people. And so part of the solution can be to bring people back into a shared space, but it can't stop there. We have to start thinking about how do you go about consciously giving people the skills to meaningfully uh, connect with their colleagues um, and doing the things, actively doing the things they need to in order to maintain social connection. Because it is a crisis. The Surgeon General uh, referred to it as a a crisis um, fairly recently. And there's a crisis of loneliness at work that isn't restricted to people that work remotely, but is affecting us. Uh, but is affecting us more broadly as we try to figure out the new tools and the new techniques you need to use in order to maintain social connectedness. And if you don't have that, then that leads to le- worse health outcomes overall. Interesting. So now, now I'm going to segue a little bit into culture. Uh, I'm curious what kind of organizational culture you think needs to be in place in flexible work environments. And how do you think about the cultural attribute of trust? Yeah, so this, again, is just a fascinating and and deep question. Um, I'll go into the trust aspect of it uh, directly first. Um, Flexible work environments, and the way we think of a flexible work environment, by the way, is something where there is flexibility associated with the way in which uh, work happens. So that could mean, for example, that instead of you having task-based work that you perform from, say, nine to five, and your success is measured about uh, by how many tasks did you get done from nine to five, instead, employees are being measured either consciously or subconsciously on impact that they're creating. And that one or more aspects of like the time and the space dimension are variable. So for example, maybe there's variable, maybe you have to go to the office, but there's variability in terms of when you go to the office. Maybe you are expected to work at particular times, but there's flexibility in terms of where you work, or maybe it's a combination of the two. So that's what we think of when we talk about these sort of flexible work environments in general, flexibility about what you do, when you do it, um, and where you do it, those kind of things. So when you start to think of work in that way, and you start to think about the cultural aspects that are uh, associated, that are necessary in order to be able to make that happen, well, a lot of it can be can boil down to the idea that you need to create a culture whereby the people inside that culture basically can do great work when nobody's looking. And so um, you can try, you can try to solve it the other way by, in other words, using surveillance tech. But you start using surveillance tech, you see culture spiral out of control negatively. We've encountered, you might have heard some of these apocryphal stories, but we've encountered situations where uh, where people have admitted to us 
that they've you know built little uh, little mini robots or something to move their mouse so because they know that there's mouse tracking technology right and all of their time and their attention gets uh, gets shifted into how can i fool the system how can i how can i basically um fool my employer to think i'm working when i'm not well how about you have a culture whereby people use that time and effort to do the work that they're supposed to be doing for the company right so that's an example of where it works where it works super badly so what you really need to do as i say is create this culture where where people are happy and uh, to do the work when no when nobody is watching and they're comfortable with the fact that nobody is watching and they want to go ahead and do that work so what that means is a lot has to be we have to look a lot into purpose inside teams we have to look a lot at individual purpose and we have to look a lot at purpose at the organizational level right people need to know why they're coming to work each day and what good they're doing. It needs to map in some way to their own kind of personal compass, if you like. And then obviously connected to that, directly connected to that, is the trust piece that you're talking about. And so the trust piece is super interesting in these types of environments because you simultaneously need more of it. You need more trust because... Anything that, because trust is basically essential in this in this type of environment. A manager needs to trust the employee is doing work because the manager can't see that the employee is doing work. So it's more important for in order to ensure the work gets done. But it's easier for that trust to devolve and go away. Um, and the re reason for that is really centered around some stuff that is kind of deep inside us. When we work with managers, we do this very simple thought experiment with them. We say, imagine that you're a manager where you've got all of your um, all of your people that work for you that are in a corridor just down uh, just down the hall from you. Um, you walk down the you walk down the hallway. You see one of your employees hard at work at their whiteboard. Computer shut down. They're working away. They're seriously focusing. Right? What's the thought that goes through your mind? And in general, managers say to us, "Oh, I'm super pleased. I see this guy's doing really good work. They're really focused. They're really involved in what they're doing." I said, "Okay, now take that exact scenario." And this time, instead of your employee standing in front of their whiteboard, deep in thought, working hard, they're now doing exactly that same thing, but they're doing it at home. What do you see that as a manager? Well, what you see is away on Slack or Teams or whatever. And then what do you see an hour later? You see away. What do you see an hour and a half later? You see away. What's the first thought that pops in your mind then? Well, most of the managers will share with us, well, I'm thinking they're probably basically slacking off, right? They're basically, <laughs> to pardon the puns, they're probably on Slack. But, but, they're, but I, think, I think that they're not working. So in the first case, my trust and, uh, and appreciation of my employee has gone up. In the second case, it's gone down. And yet nothing about the actual work scenario has changed. So this is one of the reasons why it's, you simultaneously need it, but it's harder to maintain. So we have to place much more additional focus on maintaining trust inside organizations and consciously do things to keep the trust level high. Because if we don't, the trust level can spiral out of control. Of those two things I mentioned, um, basically the trust piece and the purpose piece, trust is easily number one, certainly at a team level and an organizational level. You can go for a period of time in a team and not have a sense of shared purpose while you're figuring that out, as long as you have good trust. But if you have low trust, you'll never even establish that sense of purpose in the first place. And, and even if you do, nobody will trust each other in order to be able to fulfill the sense of purpose. So you do need both, 
But I think trust is kind of number one. Yeah. It's so true and so hard too, right? When people, it, it, it feels like it's human nature that if you don't experience it, it's not true, right? So if I'm not experiencing the people working, then it does not exist. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just like this human thing that drives me crazy. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's, that's such a good point. So, you know, thinking about these managers and leaders who are, we're hoping being supportive, um, what kind of advice do you have for for them, for managers and leaders who are really trying to support flexible work? Well, I think one thing is that's really, really important for them to understand is that this is fundamentally different. And I think the, the problem is, um, with regard to these changes in work that have happened, is we've had this, this one event, COVID, that seemed absolutely massive. But it's almost like hidden what's been going on in the interim. If you look over the past 15 years or so, it's absolutely possible to argue that for certain types of work in particular, like uh, information work, if you like, um, every aspect of it has changed. The what, the when, the how, even the why, in many cases, certainly the where, all of those aspects have changed. And it's been this change through a a whole combination of subtle, small uh, changes that have kind of compounded upon each other. And so that's happened for many of us faster than our ability to adapt. So if you're a manager and you were managing, say, three years ago, how different is your management style today than it was three years ago? And if it's not radically different, then you might be wanting to ask yourself some questions. Because if all of those other things have changed and you've not changed alongside it, then probably you're not doing the best work, uh, the best work as a manager that you can do. So we found many managers that were like top performing managers in the old world, and, and they're not now. Well, why are they not now? It's because everything was optimized in their management style for how things were. And so those things that worked previously, well, they don't necessarily work so well now. And one of the it, Uh, One of the challenges that managers have initially when they're trying to adapt their style is they try to sort of almost like recreate what they did in, let's say, a more formal office setting. And rather than actually taking a step back and going, okay, this is the world in which I now manage. I've got some general generalized skills, but what is the right way to manage inside this new environment? And so I think really the key is to really kind of take uh, take some time back and reflect and then focus on what skills you need to build as a manager to be super effective in a flexible work environment, because it will likely be very different. This is great. I'm going to, uh, I have the privilege of asking the final question. So what do you, th- from from your from your point of view, you've, you've met so many people, so many managers, so many employees, and it must be frustrating to see people not doing it right. Um, for the people that are still operating in the old world, and now they, they yeah. found themselves in the new world and they don't really know what to do, what do you think is just one great generic thing that all managers could change to thrive and survive in the new world? What's one change that you'd like to see? Well, um, it's almost like a meta change, if I can say, uh, Michael. I think that Um, It actually goes back to how you work on developing yourself. So we built, uh, so when we built our company, we built our company around these things called learn, do experiences. They're 10 minutes in length. 
Um, and so typically it's like two or three minutes learning a principle and then seven or eight minutes practicing it. And we ask people to repeat that as, a as effectively a daily practice. The key with it is that what we're talking about here is behavior change. We're talking about changing your behavior, how you behave as a manager. And in order to be able to do that, you need to get into the discipline of continuously working on your skills on a day-to-day -day basis. So if it's one thing, I would say to every manager out there, whether you're doing it with us or whether you're doing it in some kind of other way, get into a discipline of spending 10 minutes every day doing nothing other than honing your skills, honing your management skills, and do that repeatedly. Don't do the offsite that you forget 90% of within a month, 70% of within a week. Replace that with daily practice. It's like building a muscle. You don't go to the gym one day every three months and successfully build muscles in the gym. You go to the gym a few days a week or, or ideally even every day, and you'll gradually build those muscles. So think of your management skills as a muscle that you have to build and practice on it, uh, practice it daily. That's so good. And we don't do that, do we? We tend to think about it like every three months, every quarter, let's like, oh yeah, let's do a development uh, exercise, right? Yeah. And it is really pretty backwards, isn't it? This, So I feel like we just scratched the surface. There's so much to the things that you're bringing up, Paul. And so just so grateful that you joined us today and got, like, got us thinking about this. Um, and I think that the idea that you know, it's changed so radically. Work has changed so radically. And I, sometimes we just forget that, I think. You know, we just go along like it's been the same way the whole time. So I think that's a, such a good reminder that it, it has changed so much and we need to change with it. So, so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.